This is a conversation I'm really happy to bring you. It's an interview with the artist Mr. Fish. His work has been featured in places like The Village Voice, Harper's Magazine, Truth Dig, The LA Times, uh, and galleries in America. And recently he has had a full-length documentary made about his life called Cartooning from the Deep End. Uh, Mr. Fish embodies for me everything I believe art uh, should be. He is unafraid to be left outside of institutions who will not accept his criticisms. He is not afraid to speak truth to power, even if it means he never gains power himself. And he is not afraid to suffer for saying what he thinks, personally, career-wise, or even physically. Mr. Fish has long been, in my opinion, one of the bravest artists working anywhere in the world for saying what he thinks, no matter the consequences. We talk about a variety of themes in this conversation, but one that comes up consistently is satire. I believe for Mr. Fish, or Fish, as I'll just shorten it to throughout the conversation, Fish would say one of his favorite quotes comes from Lenny Bruce. Take away the right to say fuck, and you take away the right to say fuck the government. I like that quote. Why I wanted to talk to Mr. Fish comes from a different brilliant mind. Antonio Gramsci, that the old world is dying, the future has yet to be born, and now is the time of monsters. And I believe Fish's work uh, better than any other artists I've seen in America uh, does a great job of bringing these monsters into the light and letting us look in horror and disgust at the current political system that we have. And I think that is something that only an artist can do, uh, illuminate through satire, through insight, the ways in which the systems that we currently follow uh, have led us down a monstrous path and that we either need to create new worlds or stay in the one we currently have and get devoured by these monsters or become them ourselves. If you like what we're doing, follow us on social media or if you're interested in coming to Asia and meeting some of the artists, creatives, scientists, brilliant thinkers who are trying to build new worlds, um, come and visit us on asiaarttours.com. All right, here's Mr. Fish. Sort of like the first question I had is, um, I had like a good catalyst. My dad was a, was a criminal defense attorney for um, public defense. So he was a public defender. Anyone who walked through the door, you know, he would take their case. My mother predominantly worked with sort of poor um, black and brown defendants in Detroit who needed someone who would work appeal. But, you know, they were still pretty wedded to liberalism in a lot of ways, um, you know, voted for Clinton, voted for Obama, uh, and believed all that. And I, I guess this question is sort of two parts. Did you also sort of have a, a framework? And then 
have there been sort of challenges in these really trying times of you sort of saying, look, we can't go back to the way things were. What we have to do is something new. So where did you start? And then how are you trying to continue the project with some of the people who helped you be you, be radical in the first place? Uh, Well, it is. It's a good question. And I don't have anybody... um in my life that was directly connected with any, you know, formal version of radicalism in the sense that they were, you know, very politically active uh, or engaging in, you know, public dissent in any traditional way. My family was always just very interested in making the most inappropriate joke at the right time. And we always tried to outdo each other. Um, so that was my f- formal education as far as, as as radical thinking, because if you are grow up trying to make the best joke, then, you know, that's that's all the practice that I needed. <laughs> yeah. So there is that. Um, and, you know, if you grow up in a situation where you're experiencing uh, the elation of joy and the camaraderie of family, all trying to, you know, get to the heart of Operating in contempt of bullshit is really what it was about. So if you if, if that's how you engage with the world from a very early age, uh, as you get older, you start to recognize how these things manifest in the real world and the um, the, the instinct to deflect and condemn uh, bullshit. The targets go from, you know, being pissed off about. Uh, you know, how shitty the weather is or how idiotic your uncle or aunt are to, uh, the, you know, the president and real authority figures and, uh, and, and things like that. How have you sort of, how have people tried to control you as you've evolved as an artist? And then along the way, how did people sort of nudge you or let you know that what you were doing was interesting? Working for publications like the LA Times and, and Harper's and, and mainstream publications like that. Yes. As I continued with, you know, the radical depiction of power, whatever face it has, you know, it can be very well-spoken and intelligent and have a black face like Obama. Uh, but to me, it's it's the same reprehensibility that, you know, George W. Bush had or just had, you know, I criticized the chair of the, of the presidency. Yes, it did become a situation where uh, I, I feel like in the United States, more and more, the concept of what it means to be a progressive thinker uh, continues to move to the right. It continues to be uh, softened and hijacked by d- democratic liberalism. It's, it's, it defangs the whole purpose of trying to have a radical opinion and effective dissent from what is wrong with the world. So there were, it's slowly moving uh, into the Obama administration. Uh, I was considered t- too much you know, too angry and too dismissive of what the liberal Democrats thought was uh, was the, the right direction as far as moving to what they saw the left and I saw as moving to the right. And the thing that sustained me through all of that is uh, if you talk to artists who engage in this kind of activity, uh, you serve the art first, you know, and you serve your, uh, your um, concept of honesty in dealing with these issues. So it's it's not about trying to figure out how whatever corporation is publishing your work, how to satiate their sense of truth. It's it's about maintaining your own sense of truth. Uh, and I've I've always been able to 
recognize that the integrity of my voice is only meaningful if the integrity remains intact. And I think that's why people tend to like what I do. You know, so while I was being turned down and eventually completely blacklisted from many of these publications, my fans uh, would come to my site uh, and, and know where to find my work outside of these publications and and say, thank God that you're still doing what you do. As a result, I tend to be a lone voice in that struggle, at least publicly, but privately, these, you know, people who like my work are as angry and are as blatantly pulsed by what they should be. As you've evolved as an artist, how have people tried to control you? And then along the way, how did people sort of nudge you or let you know that what you were doing was interesting? You know, radical thinking and radical you know, it's 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 a it's a it's it's its own language. It's its own version of engaging with the truth. And so therefore, I think it's always going to be there. All right. Now, that's that's one way to look at it. And that's why it's sort of complicated, because while there's it depends what day you ask that question, there'll be days where I'm just I'm absolutely convinced that we're doomed. Control of their lives is becoming so pervasive that it's going to be impossible to 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 untangle it and then express humanitarianism in any real meaningful way. And there's other days when, because of the people that I engage with, you know, there is this feeling of like, all right, if if corporations and power hijack platforms of artistic, you know, expression, there's always walls. There's always smaller ways to organize and get into the streets and circulate uh, underground newspapers, placards, broadsheets. You know, it's like I said, it's, it's been going on for quite a while. I would be too arrogant to try to answer that in a way. Uh, I'm very present centered to a fault, you know, so every single day I wake up with a, a, a great deal of joy and optimism that things will get better. And it's only based on my mood and it's only based on that I'm able to uh, create the stuff that I create and people are responding to it. So I'm very excited by that. And that's all I can do. I'm sure you've been offered tons of marketing uh, opportunities, licensing opportunities. Um, what were some of the temptations that you've had to go through um, in terms of maintaining your integrity and or whatever your personal philosophy was to turn down some of those opportunities and for, you know, people who are struggling and then all of a sudden are given a chance to be adopted into sort of power, what um, lessons from your own experiences would you just say as either cautionary tales or just things to consider? I started cartooning as a, as a, profession, I guess you could say, right when my uh, daughters were born. Previous to that, I've, I've always done cartoons, and I've been in print since 1990. Uh, but that said, um, because I was also doing music, I was doing a lot of writing, I was doing all these things, um, I only did, there were some years between 1990 and 2003 when maybe I would do maybe five cartoons a year. It wasn't something that was like, oh, I'm a cartoonist and this is what I'm going to be doing constantly. I sort I fell into it because I despise the profession I, largely. I mean, in the United States, so much of the political and editorial cartooning is, you know, arguing the integrity of your own political party by attacking the other one. And I saw that as just a ridiculous. It, it, it's like sports. 
You know, it was like, I am arguing in defense of my team. Uh, so I got into it just because I was reprehensible. I mean, I really despised that, that technique. Um, and so by the time it's 2003, uh, I'm the stay at home parent. My wife is a teacher and she said, do me a favor and focus on one of the things that you like, like to do to try to increase the income while you're at home. So that's when I started to do lots of cartoons and I was immediately, uh, successful at it. Um, and anybody who knows political cartooning and cartooning in general, it doesn't pay a whole lot. So there were some scenarios then, uh, working for the Village Voice and so forth, where the advertising agency that the Voice used recognized my abilities and wanted to use them to help advertise the newspaper. So I was like, okay, I can sort of see where that is a viable thing. So I did a little bit of that. And then some other ad agencies saw, wow, his stuff could actually help sell Red Bull. Uh, so very early on, um, anybody who knows advertising too, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, for every storyboard I did for the Red Bull people, uh, it's an easy thousand dollars. And, you know, for me, about an hour, hour and a half of work. Um, so I did that for about a month. And made a ton of money, which was great to throw into the bank, you know, because as I said, I had these brand new babies. Uh, but that was on the understanding that they would not use my name. And it was nothing that I felt terribly good about. And it taught me the lesson of just like, it, because this makes me feel a little sick and because I'm enabling something like, uh, you know, Red Bull and, and meeting a lot of those people, just as sort of a disgusting group of people, really reminded me what I was in the profession for, which was actually to avoid this existential nausea that comes out of of uh, having your abilities co-opted or allowing them to be co-opted by uh, these larger entities that are only interested in profit. And the last experience that I had and the one and what really hit home was, uh, again, I'm home. I've got the kids. I get a call from this uh, ad agency that wanted me to do a 30 second animation for a client that they said was going to be advertising during the Super Bowl. And I'm like, oh, that's that that sounds great. You know, they wanted it to be like black and white wiggly line animation that I could do very, very quickly. They like they love the style. So I didn't know what to ask for. I'm not really in that world. But they said, OK, well, we'll start. We'll ask for sixty thousand dollars for your 30 second spot. And I'm like, holy heck, you know. And then I asked the question, well, who is this client for? And they said, well, you don't need to know that. And I said, well, hell, I'm going to know, aren't I, when I do the animation? They said, no, it's an animation. It's, uh, you know, their name's going to be at the end, but it's really just a joke, and you're going to be able to just do it fine. I said, well, now I really need to know who, who this is. And they said, well, the truth of the matter is, if we tell you who it is, there's no way you would do it. And I said, well, then I, then I can't do it, you know. And so it, it died. And it was just this, and it made me feel... To be able to walk away from that and feel like I had the integrity of my soul was allowed to remain intact and that I didn't sell myself was a great feeling. You know, my wife would have a different interpretation of what that scenario was. And there are, I mean, there's, there's penalties for, for that. There's penalties for, oh, for wanting to maintain that integrity. Because the, the truth of the matter in the, in the United States, there's the, since you have the eradication of the middle class, uh, the arts community is less and less able to just have a sh shitty part-time job and then dedicate, you know, his or her own time towards artistic expression. It just doesn't happen anymore. 
And that's, uh, that's, that's deliberate. More and more, the artistic voice is not being invited into political conversation in this country. And if you can get that, which is connected to the, connected to the question you asked just a little bit ago, you know, it's connected with uh, how does an artist uh, support him or herself uh, if the only platforms from which you're going to be able to sell your art is being controlled by a corporation who is not interested in having an audience. They're interested in serving customers. You know, and with that scenario, the customer is going to be the the one who determines the level of intelligence in your art. And that's 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 not a great scenario to be in because, you know, all of the business ideas where the customer is always right. You don't want to offend the customer because we're talking about a broad swath of people. And inside that gigantic population are some knee-jerk reactionaries uh, who are going to be offended by lots of things. And when it comes to dissent, and one of the things inside of a radical person's mind is fuck corporations, you can't sell the idea of fuck corporations to a corporation. And it, it's, it reminds me of the quote that I often use in these, these conversations about this, and it's from Lenny Bruce, and who said, uh, take away the right to say fuck, and you take away the right to say fuck the government. Your own work, I just wanted to try to zoom in on two to three pieces and just sort of get your sense of what was going through your head and why you think they got the reaction they got. So the first piece is, we'll start light. It was one of your earlier pieces. It's two figures. Uh, it's a, a rich guy and an artist. And behind them is a portrait of the rich guy. And then under it, it says fucking and then ASS and starting to write in nature, it's very clear they're going to write asshole. And then the artist is saying, can I please have some money to finish my art? Um, and this was a, a piece that uh, early on brought you a lot of fame. People absolutely loved it. Um, what was going through your head when you, when you uh, created this work? And then why do you think it got such a popular response? I was at that time, I was working at an auction house in uh, Philadelphia. And the uh, auction house was run by uh, a group of rich, white, Philadelphian, reprehensible guys. They were blatant racists. Uh, I worked one of my uh, colleagues uh, who actually had been working for five or six years before I got there, happened to be black. I got hired making more money than him because I, I was white. I mean, that's how blatant it was. And as a matter of fact, at one point, uh, I was I uh, contacted the uh, Better Business Bureau and wanted them to come in and, and uh, go through the um, payroll because they, there's a clear case of, of active racism inside this company. Uh, and so it was I was going forward with it and I was talking to them. And what they said was that they can't come in and and ask for uh, the, the books on payment unless a black person who is being victimized by the situation actually contacts them. I couldn't insist on it because I wasn't the, the victim of the racism. So I went and I said this uh, to a bunch of the, uh, the, uh, the black workers who worked there, and they were too afraid to do that because they knew that they were going to get fired. So the whole thing fell apart. So anyway, so in this atmosphere, while uh, that's going on, and when I'm not at work, I was playing music and I was drawing and I was trying to be an artist. Uh, it just struck me of, of who is 
who is who's in charge here? And it's the suits. It's the white guys. Uh, and all, all I would think about was in, in order to uh, save myself, I really had to figure out how to only be an artist and nothing else. I didn't want to help any of these rich white motherfuckers anymore. So during my lunch break, I literally went into the uh, nearby park, took out a piece of paper, drew the cartoon that you're referring to just as is, uh, just to express this frustration, uh, and sent it and it got published in Harper's. Um, and it resonates with people because I think people, you don't have to be an artist to recognize how, uh, straight society insists on your detachment as a human being from the process. Um, and it's funny that you picked that one out because over the years, uh, friends of mine would travel. And I remember the first time a friend of mine went to Prague, brought back a picture. Well, this was before cell phones, I think. Uh, brought back a picture that he had taken of that cartoon taped to the side of an espresso machine in Prague. And then over the years, I just have gotten that constantly. It's been taped up as inspiration for artists and just for, you know, radically minded people ever since it was published in 1993, I think. The uh, the cartoon that is similar to that for me, I actually like it better for me. I don't know why it's a gut thing is where it's all this. It's like a row of suits in uh, across a boardroom. They're all sitting. It's a half table. And some guy raises his hand and he says, I second I think Thompson's motion to fuck over everyone who isn't us. Um, and I, I mean, I think that those, um, for me, why I like those cartoons in particular is it's, there's a lot of polish to the brutality of capitalism and empire. Um, I think, I forget who said this recently. It was someone sort of prominent, but they said basically people like Obama, it's like nice fascism, like, we're going to run over you, bomb you, uh, bail out our Wall Street friends, fuck over everyone who isn't us, but we'll do it with a smile. And I like those cartoons because they remind me of sort of that blunt reality uh, and not to fall for the advertising, which is captivating. Yeah, and that's the thing. And, and that's, that's, uh, that's one of the things, too, that is so powerful about can be so powerful about cartooning and just satire and joke making is that really so often all it is is saying the most obvious truth about something, you know, because society is governed by, so as I said earlier, just the, the concept that you have to be polite, that being impolite to say the wrong thing at the right time and communicate a truth about an injustice in the most obvious way, it's, it's so funny to me that it's, it's read as a joke. And a great gag, because really what we're the stuff we're talking about and the subject of those cartoons, they're not laughable. And and so the fact that going to these sources where you're going to get the truth and the fact that, that you have to go to these sources to find the truth is so absurd that I guess one of the reactions is is laughter. And you're right about the Obama situation. I remember right when he became president, uh, my job became very difficult for the reasons that you were saying. And I even did a cartoon where it's just like Obama is actually more dangerous than somebody like George W. Bush, because it's very easy to forgive somebody who is so smooth and suave about how he is implementing 
you know, this form of fascistic behavior because you want to like him. So you'll forgive him. I saw it going up to the election of, of Obama. If you remember, before he knew he was going to be the nominee, uh, his, his language was, was very community organizer. And that's what got people so excited. And then when he was made the nominee and was moving closer to election day, all of a sudden his policy started to shift where he allowed conversation in there where he's like, yes, if I become president, it won't be taken off the table that uh, I might uh, attack Iran. And very and things like that, where he started to sound more and more like a hawk. And the people I was talking to were saying, well, he has to say that, ignoring the fact that he's saying these things that you could say are criminal. That's not where an artist or somebody like me wants to reside. For the um, next two cartoons I wanted to talk about. Um, so one is Trump. He is as Captain America, except his hood is off. So you can see it's Trump, but you can see the Captain America uh, suit. And uh, he has a, a suicide vest on and a detonator in his hand. And then the other is the is the aforementioned cartoon from Harper's where uh, Obama is as a, a police officer with a German shepherd attacking Martin Luther King. And the question is, I guess, just what were what are the challenges and why do they exist for satirizing? Uh, a figure like Trump, why is, you know, the level of satire been reduced to like Alec Baldwin, you know, doing one of the worst impressions I've ever seen? Uh, or you can't talk about our patron saint that way. What, what were some of the challenges of criticizing these figures? And why does it seem like sort of for liberals as well, like the outcome is so extreme on one end, you just have the most idiotic satire that you can imagine. And then on the other end, no, you can't say anything. Uh, he can, you know, do he can bomb school buses full of children in Yemeni. We don't care. You're not allowed to criticize him. Why were why were the, these extremes when you were satirizing, uh, in satirizing these figures? And then what is I guess what does your work try to do differently? Well, let's start with the Obama cartoon. Uh, the Obama cartoon uh, really it came out of the fact again that I I find so much of uh, political an editorial cartooning in the United States. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very soft, particularly when it came to Obama, that what I was getting so tired of was the both, both times that Obama was uh, elected the first and the second time, uh, it, hundreds of cartoonists in this country, the best that they could offer was some version of a Martin Luther King in a cloud looking down with tears in his eyes, being so happy that Obama was in, in the White House. Yeah, I think that reducing the conversation to that level of simplicity is a disservice to so many things, and, and in fact, to uh, Martin Luther King himself. A socialist who hated empire. Exactly. <laughs> so all you have to do is listen to his, particularly his, the last speeches that he was giving, and you recognize that he was a radical thinker and and uh, a dangerous personality to the people who should be afraid of him. And I, I saw it as, as as a kind of soft racism that these cartoonists were engaging in, because what they were saying was that uh, Martin Luther King is so happy because Obama's in the White House first and then for a second term because they're both black. So therefore, they would like each other. 
Um, and that to me is just like it's it's beyond it's you can't apologize for that. Sure, there's a historical significance that there's allowed a black president. Okay, that is fine. But beyond that, equating those two guys in the same breath and saying that they would be great chums is d- reprehensible to me. Something I was thinking about uh, on this subject before I called is that if you looked at probably the African American Museum of History in Washington, most of the people in it would be furious because what they're being used as is the liberal idea of progress. When in reality, you could bring back Dubois or you know uh, Martin Luther King or any of these uh, figures, Malcolm X, uh, Huey, but they're being viewed as prop- they're being used as propaganda for the liberal myth of that uh, everything is progress and that everything led up to Obama when in reality, if you juxtapose Obama with any of those figures, they would have vehemently opposed his policies, just like Cornell West did. Absolutely. And so just getting back to just the, the it was my responsibility to do cartoons that desperately tried to separate those two. And in fact, I did one, one of the ones that I liked that I did. I had uh, Martin Luther King and he was a, uh, a hundred dollar bill. Uh, and his face was in the middle, and he was uh, looking at Obama, and Obama was a $500 monopoly uh, bill, you know, which really has no value. And he's looking at uh, Martin Luther King and saying, hey, look, we're twins. Yeah, so I guess it was an actual $500 bill that Martin Luther King is. That I guess the 500 would make them the twins, where one has value and the other one really does. That was the thought behind the, the Martin Luther King with the uh, taking off of the civil rights image that I did for the attack dog one. And as you said earlier, the blowback was such that I, I lost work and people were offended. And and uh, and, and, and again, and, and just even to con- connecting it to the Trump cartoon, which I'm going to talk about, uh, what is lost is I think that people have got have uh, been uh, systematically made to 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 be uh, numb to true satire. It doesn't really exist anymore in this country. Just for the reason, like you said, I think that people look to Saturday Night Live and say, oh, look, satire is alive and well. When all that is, it's parody, it's burlesque. You don't come away from those, you know, you don't come away from an Alec Baldwin skit about Trump and be made very angry and ready to go into the streets about, you know, about what is really fucked up about the society. You laugh and you minimize his the toxicity of the real person because he's been made into a buffoon. One of the challenges when it comes to uh, producing cartoons critical of Trump is it's so ridiculous and it's it's already a, a version of a cartoon. It's difficult to produce commentary that is intelligent because what you're what you're uh, um, engaging with is so idiotic. So that's the thing. Like with the thing that you saw, I, I wanted to show a certain level of seriousness with it you know i mean i wanted there's explosive there's explosives in there you know and there's there's you can have a talk about what is heroism you know what is captain america you know what is what is what is happening and i try to do with images like that and with the obama so-called cartoon even to call them cartoons is sort of funny to me because i don't necessarily see myself as a cartoonist i just see myself as producing visual commentary I try to make my artwork a little more interesting than just this traditional cartoon bubble caricaturing of politics, because if I can make my art at all interesting, just as 
the craft of it, it presents a, a situation where somebody might be more interested in staying in front of that piece of art because of the artistic merit of it longer than just responding to the cartoon message. And if you're in front of, of, of a idea like that for any length of time, then there's a greater opportunity, I think, to communicate the humanitarian depth of what I'm trying to say. It's the same thing with, and I'm not going to say that I'm like Daumier, you know, from France from the 1800s, but I mean, I think that that's one of the things that's so profound about his work, particularly his later work, was the fact that he was such an amazing artist. His his ability to make a piece of art that somebody is going to be like, wow, let me look at this longer than I would, you know, any number of the British cartoonists working at the time. It's it's to me it's 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 doubly important to have a serious piece of art accompanying a serious subject matter uh, because it demonstrates that the person who is creating the art and creating the commentary feels that it is a subject that is important enough, demanding sufficient attention to. I will work five or six hours on an image and hope that people recognize the fact that it took me a long time and then really want to uh, live with it for a little while. You've put yourself in a sling a couple times. I have. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's so funny that you say that. Because I don't know if it's just because I'm just getting older and stuff. Yeah, but some of these... Uh, and I did one for the Nib magazine, the cartoon magazine out of yeah. the uh, Intercept. I just did the cover and the back cover and and sort of the section illustrations that introduced the sections. And the front cover picture is the uh, it's Mount Rushmore, but with Trump as all the heads. It was going to be an easy image, I thought, because it's just like, oh, it's rock face and it's just the heads and the detail in the rock face alone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It took me like two days to do. And literally, I couldn't I couldn't do much anything else for the next week and a half. It, it really messed me up. When you were talking about the SNL dichotomy, I was just thinking of when Kate McKinnon did Hallelujah as uh, Hillary Clinton. And I was just thinking, now that's satire. But the, the fucked up part is like the satire or like The Daily Show now when it's basically just like these fawning interviews with you know you know like a figure like uh paul krugman or you know like a more like a chuck schumer or nancy pelosi like that's satire um of and i think john stewart started that and i don't think he's really acknowledged that that he really the satire of the daily show is not so much that um uh you know that they would criticize government policies but it's that towards the end at least they started to have these really fawning interviews and it's sort of like the sincerity is the satire and the it that's disturbing to me that uh they they don't recognize that as satire yeah and it's funny that you bring up the uh the daily show because this was the relationship i had with the daily show when john stewart was there is i i I watched it every single time and i really and i liked watching it uh but the number of disappointments that i had with him uh just steadily grew this is what you're talking about. You know, he would have Condoleezza Rice on. And I'm like, oh, this is an opportunity to actually have a, a deep sort of conversation about war criminality. But of course, you know, it's John Stewart at the end of the day is Viacom. So, you know, being not being given a opportunity to have somebody answer for certain things that she should have answered for was really upsetting. Um, and 
while I thought that so much of the conversation that was happening on The Daily Show at that time was important and would move the ball in the direction of what I would say is true satire and and truly effective art as far as commentary against the dominant culture in its in its worst form. Um, I think that where the difference of that show and say somebody like, as I mentioned, Lenny Bruce earlier, and even other forms of satire from the 19 late 1950s up through the 60s and into the early 70s with the underground comics movement and just when the alternative press was at its absolute height. One of the things that was different, you know, when you look at the earlier examples of satire from recent history is that, yes, there were some laughs inside of those those situations uh, by these artists. There was also some real vitriolic disdain and a feeling of just injustice that when you would leave the performances, you were made you were still a little bit uncomfortable. You were upset. You know, you were still it, it allowed you to it stoked some of the anger and allowed you to leave with the embers still slightly glowing. Where the difference, I would say, is with something like The Daily Show is that really the goal was to get laughs at the end of everything. You could talk about how horrible things were, but really it only succeeded if there was a joke at the end. Stuart himself kept saying when, it, when he was – since he was considered the most trusted newsman in America, people wanted to then – Talk to him about what that meant, what the responsibility of that was. And he would always, if you if you listen, you probably know this, the cop out was always, I'm just a comedian. Right. So what and so what does laughter do to one's physiology when they're engaged in uh, listening to what what is called political satire? When your body laughs, your physiology is is experiencing a sense of relief that the mirth of that is crippling the rage that you need to be an effective dissenter of political policy that is disgusting and so so long as as satire is allowed to a enter our homes in these private spaces keep us in those private spaces through our televisions and so forth and get to the end of our uh of our disdain for shitty politics with laughter the laughter is going to keep us from actually going into the public spaces and becoming a threat to a government that needs to feel threatened. You can be as so-called radical as you want on any of these shows. You can say Trump and Putin are gay. <laughs> right. And so that's the thing. I think that uh, Paul Krasner, who was the editor of The Realist uh, back in the 60s, and also a really great friend of, of Lenny Bruce, he once he, he told me when he, uh, he said that Lenny Bruce gave uh, John Stewart the right to be offensive and then get bleeped on television. You know, that was that was handing off the mantle. And it's a sad truth. You know, it's when you have somebody who sacrificed their their uh, lives, essentially, to wanting to to be able to speak truthfully um, to where you can speak truthfully. But it's going to be bleeped and it's going to be uh, subverted in a way that the, that the, the, the teeth are going to be taken out of it. And a big gummy smile is going to be what is going to be left at the end. That was sort of the zeitgeist of that moment. Uh, you either wanted to like tune in, turn off, drop out, you know, you just wanted to be part of this different counterculture and completely ignore sort of the structures of uh, 
government or capitalism and just do your own thing, or you are actively really in opposition to that. And lately when I've been hearing all these people who I, you know, used to really respect, um, deliver really fawning praise to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or say we must defend Ilhelm Omar, my thinking is like, well, if you were really radical, why the, why would you go into Congress? <laughs> and I, I am really struggling with that in terms of you're obviously a student of the 60s. Why do you think our generation, is it a shrinking of hope? Is it, because um, I really think that like, I think it's like a hangover from the Obama years that we still think that that's progress. The expanding of the, the circles of liberalism to continue bringing in more and more diverse people into the power base so that they can exploit the majority while using them as a, a shield saying, no, this is actually progress. Um, why can't more young people see that? Is my analysis incorrect? And, and why, what are your own thoughts about this sort of this, these phenomenon of these younger people who actually want to be part of the machine as opposed to say, you know, fuck the machine or rage against the machine, if we can name a cool band. Uh, no, you're 100% right. And I think that one of the reasons is because the younger generation uh, does not, they don't know who the heroes of the 1960s and early 70s were. I mean, I teach at Penn a class on the history of satire and another class on the uh, history of art as commentary. Um, and I think we, a whole nother conversation would involve why this amnesia, as far as when it comes to even recent history, you know, we could, we could explore reasons of uh, technology and the fact that you don't have to deliberate on anything for any length of time because the technology allows instant access to abbreviated versions of truth. And that's all you need to know. And you only need to know it in the moment when you feel like you need to know it. So why go on a, 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 a quest for truth? So I think that when it comes to radical politics, uh, the younger people just they don't understand that society shifts in a positive way after a number of people congregate around their own pain. And then they have their own pain. Uh, they have the finger f forced into the wound by power over and over again as they put themselves essentially, you know, where there are riot police, where there are government officials needing to cut off the chains that you've lashed yourself to the fence around the White House. You know, it's, and, and this is a, this is a lifestyle that is uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. Uh, but social change comes after a series of brutal losses and then a sudden victory. That's just, that's just the truth of history. So I think that, uh, younger people, rather than knowing that that is the trajectory, uh, and that the penalties for engaging in anarchistic behavior, anarchistic in the, in the real literal version of it, the world is not set up to reward people like that or even to help them along. So you have to be ready to know that there's penalties for uh, truth-telling and to be uncomfortable in that and not to get the rewards of even three square meals a day if it becomes that, that necessary. Um, so I think that people – well, just look at the Occupy movement. The Occupy movement, when that started, it was really profound and meaningful to many people who recognized 
this how uh, movements have succeeded in the past because there was no figurehead. There were no bullet point agendas, you know, that and that, I think that was a great delight at the very beginning of that movement, because the press and critics of that movement were asking, what are you doing? Who is your leader? What are your demands? And it was a situation where people, again, were, were congregating around their own pain and their own sense of injustice and the feeling that, wow, I'm not alone in in recognizing that something in this society is disenfranchising and compromising my humanity, right? And so then the sad part of that is that was firing and motivating for a number of young people for a certain amount of time. And how did that movement end? All power needed to do was go in in the night, knock down some tents, push over the free library in Zuccotti Park. And because these young people did not have any sense that yes and then you rebuild you 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 rejigger your your strategy and and remain on the street there was this moment of regrouping and this pause that killed the movement the same thing with the anti-war movement after the invasion of iraq you know the sustainability of that discomfort is this generation doesn't recognize that so the idea of okay i'm going to become part of the system and subvert it from the inside is comical to me because that those anybody who's gone to college <laughs> and has been sort of a liberal arts major or just a fine arts major, many of your colleagues would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to become part of this advertising conglomerate. I'm going to go into marketing and I'm going to change the system from the inside. You know, I feel myself losing my soul as I graduate. But, uh, you know, don't worry. I will still maintain it and I will change the system from the inside. I heard that from so many people for so many years. And it does, you can't. It just doesn't work that way. You're playing by their rules when you enter their system. Right. You're re literally reliant on income for the, you know, the food that you eat and the roof over your head and the social acceptance of the people around you. All of a sudden, your logic center gets shifted in such a way that you can see that expressed in just larger ways in society where, for example, if there is a company or something that's going to come in and destroy the environment, the first thing that happens is, all right, people who are opposed to that, we have to organize. And how are we going to fund the opposition to this terrible idea? It becomes a question of economics rather than true logic, you know, and it reminds. And so as a result. You know, corporations argue to the uh, to the bureaucracy of the place that they want to invade and destroy, saying it'll create jobs and that is good for the region. Oh, okay, well, I guess that is that is good. The creation of jobs and the and the and 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 profit. And it reminds me of this uh, Kurt Vonnegut quote that I've always loved, which is, uh, you know, we could have saved ourselves, but we were too damn cheap. I think something you don't hear a lot is uh, honest conversations about violence. Um, you don't really hear it with, you hear it abstractly with climate change. You hear it abstractly about war. You know, we hear, we know people are being killed in Yemen. We don't really hear in detail, you know, what's happening all around the world. Bodies being shredded, you know, children being shot through the eyes by Israeli snipers, these sorts of things. But in terms of actually affecting change, uh, individuals in the 60s were willing to die. Um, the Panthers were explicitly willing to die. The uh, many activists uh, against the Vietnam War were willing to die. And as you said, for um, Occupy, 
even in Egypt, you know, for the Tahrir Square protests, a lot of people were willing to die um, for for what that. Yeah, and they did die. Um, Turkey as well for uh, Gezi Park. You know, people died. And I, do you feel for the current generation that you teach that, and from what you hear from podcasts or uh, media that we need to again on the left have an honest conversation of if we do want to induce radical change, we we have to be willing or be aware that violence that the state already meets out uh, to the poor, to people of color, um, as methods of control will be brought home against us. That we we need to have honest conversations about if we really want change, we have to be willing to endure violence. Um, do you have any general thoughts on that? I just want to say that the, the truth of the matter is, is just getting back to what we were just talking about, was just that the definition of of violence needs to be broadened. It's 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 imperative that people recognize uh, the destruction of the environment as a as an extreme form of violence that can actually contribute to the eradication of the entire species. That is a kind of violence. Censorship is a kind of violence. You know, you have this, and particularly in what I do, uh, more and more the um, uh, what I'll call the retail industrial complex is disenabling people from being able to recognize the viability of the language that I use. Visual communication has been um, has been destroyed by the retail industrial complex, meaning that we're surrounded by such so much advertising that that's how we're being taught to view that particular language. Where, for example, you can walk through Times Square, right? And you can look around and you're surrounded by this visual noise that is crippling. That's okay. We're being conditioned that that is okay. Where if you turn the corner and you see in an alley a piece of, of artwork that an individual has gone at nighttime and put up uh, that is communicating some truth and trying to reveal some injustice, the reflexive response to that is, was that sanctioned by the state? No, it wasn't sanctioned by the state. It then we, it is, it is read emotionally as ugly. It's a wound on a landscape that doesn't look like it didn't get, it's not sponsored by a corporation. It be, then becomes a kind of visual garbage that needs to be cleaned up and painted over. That is a kind of, of violence. Um, and so when we see in magazines and newspapers when editorial cartooning just remains so soft and is just communicating this, this middle road, milk toast fucking attitude about politics and that any, any, anything louder or, or more desperately angry than that needs to be X'd out of existence. Because, again, getting back to the corporations needing to serve customers rather than an audience of people, that is a kind of violence. So I, I, I feel like expanding the definition of violence outside even just just bodily um, damage that one might uh, incur by going against the system, uh, it's surrounded by us. So if people would recognize the fact that you're surrounded by all these different versions of violence that are threatening your personal life and the lives of your loved ones, maybe you would panic more at the system and how it's set up. And maybe you would find a way to communicate your voice and figure out what your megaphone is 
uh, and how you can invite other people into the uh, the the conversation and into the uh, essentially the firing line uh, because that's how change has got to uh, got to happen. To march on the soldiers, some of you are going to get shot, right? Like, and they'll stop shooting, but they're going to fire shots. Right. And that's why that's what I say. I mean, that's why I mean, I think people don't realize that they're already getting shot. They're not lethal blows, but they're certainly tearing apart your soul. And they're actually removing your uh, your voice box, your voice box in the sense that you should be talking about like, hey, wait a minute. Mm. What the fuck is wrong? You know, so that is a kind of it's, it's destroying the, the your psychic anatomy in a way that is a form of violence. And you're being pacified by the the comfort of your physical body, but you, you know, is that really a life worth living? To be just protecting the shell and letting the inside just to be starved out of existence. I, I think the last question I wanted to ask you, I think, is really important for people on the left and people who want to make change: how to not come across as huge assholes to people we love. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think this is something I really struggle with. Because, you know, I meet with a lot of artists and I basically uh, come across as very contentious because they'll say, oh, isn't this meaningful? And I'll go, no, like the people coming into your museums are incredibly wealthy and would be fine if your art didn't exist. No, this is not particularly meaningful. And that reads oftentimes as hostility when where a lot of my anger comes from a radical love of humanity. If I didn't give a fuck. You know, I would just be trying to make tons of money and doing cocaine. You know, I wouldn't give a fuck. But anyone who it's, I think, very confusing for a lot of people who deal with um, those who have a great love of people and humanity in the world that it just reads as anger and hostility. So I'm just wondering, you've joked and you talk about in the documentary cartooning from the deep end, you know, the, the sort of um, not tension but definitely the sort of radical honesty that you've had to have with your wife, uh, with your sister. Um, and I know that working in media, you've dealt with a lot of people who I'm sure you, who disgust you, uh, or people who've really disappointed you, who've really let you down. How have you carried yourself in the world having to work with people who do let you down, who do quote unquote sell out? And then how do you think people on the left can do a better job communicating that this anger doesn't come out of hatred for people, but in fact, a radical love. Well, it depends on, there's so many different ways to communicate that radical love. And I know exactly what you mean. Um, the truth of the matter is, uh, and it's funny that you bring up the documentary, uh, because one of the surprises, according to the, a lot of the emails that I've gotten from people who've seen it, and people who I meet at various events that I do, they're always surprised at the fact that I am basically a, a happy, easygoing person. I think that the I, I think the fact that what what I do is appealing to people is is because uh, you know while a lot of my work is angry and contemptuous, people are in private moments of honesty and grappling with how they're engaging with the world. They're also angry. I mean, I mentioned Kurt Vonnegut earlier uh, in the in our conversation, and I think that one of the things that made him a political figure to so many, you know, by and large, uh, his novels there aren't any, there are no villains in them. 
And the reason is, is because he recognized that human beings are human beings. Certain people have limitations and access to uh, um, uh, information that makes them behave in monstrous ways. But at the end of the day, we're all the same kind of creature who have certain blind spots and certain places that they are ignorant in that can tend to victimize other people. And so if we can, if it's, it's always been my responsibility, I feel, to communicate my personal humanity in the most three-dimensional way that I can, knowing that I'm engaging with people who are also three-dimensional. And if I'm engaged in the same world they are, uh, hopefully they will get the sense and be able to plug into their sense of outrage and not feel so alone. You know, that's the that's a number of emails that I get. I'm glad that you're out there. I would never feel brave enough to talk about this stuff out loud. I'm glad that you are. What does that say? That says that we're living in a world that being privately contemptuous of wrongdoing is okay, but publicly it's not. That's not a reflection of, of of me being unlikable. That's that's the construction of how we're supposed to engage with stuff publicly. That is the problem. That is the that that is the obscenity. You know, whenever I think of you, I think of Chris Hedges as well because uh, I think I like to think privately that you do like a Radiohead thing where you send him art and then he writes a column or vice versa. The majority of the time he writes the column, although there have been times when I have suggested things uh, to him that he has not necessarily wanted to do, uh, but I tell him, you know, we have a conversation about the artwork and, and he'll do it for me. I guess that would be a good place to end for, for figures like that who've suffered. You know, that is a man who suffered in a lot of ways. Uh, you've suffered in a lot of ways. And you you have, you said these responsibilities, your, your twin girls. How do, and, and how do you weigh that? How do you weigh sort of the, the suffering that you're willing to undergo or someone like Chris is willing to undergo uh, compared to sort of the private glory that you could give to your family if you did say, you know, just take Red Bull money or money from uh, Coke Industries to do like a, you know, a snappy little cartoon. How have you, how do you think of suffering in terms of what you're willing to endure for your art compared to the the real world consequences that that means for the people you love? I think it would be selfish to engage with the world like that. And I know that Chris has the same view, you know, the, and he has said one of the things he has closed many of his talks with is that, uh, you know, you engage with the world and you, and you do something because you think it's right, not because you're going to win the battle. I mean, if you know Chris's stuff, quite often his, uh, his prediction is that we're all actually going to lose. That's not a justification for giving up. You do it because it's right. Uh, and you want to, uh, you want to have integrity as a, as a human being. And that's, if you get used to doing that, if you get used to engaging with what you are convinced is, uh, the, an ugly truth, um, you're not going to go back the, to the other, to the other side because you do, you do recognize that the rewards have actually produced for many people a living hell, you know, and I'm not, I feel like I'm mm. part a broader humanity rather than just myself. Uh, and as I see in the movie, the, the documentary, the uh, cartooning from the deep end, that's in there that I, when I was younger, my love of the 1960s was I wanted to, I wanted to grow up to be Angela Davis. I couldn't wait to grow up because all of this hard work had been done 
people had lost their lives to make the society, the feminization of society and ex- expanding our democratic privileges and the honesty with which we engage with each other, I'm like, oh, finally, I'm going to be able to live in that atmosphere of greater intellectual integrity and all of these things. And it hasn't come to pass. I feel very cheated. Um, So I think that if you develop the sensitivity to the fact that things are set up in such a way to make you part of a reprehensible system, you're going to you're going to know when that is when that is is knocking at the door, and uh, that the the sacrifice of yourself to surrender to that situation is it's not worth it. You know, it's really you're it's it's essentially you feel like you're drowning. So what does one do when they're drowning? Is that you you panic. And you try to keep your head above water and you produce art. It doesn't throw a life preserver to people. It teaches people how to swim so that, that we all can keep our heads above water. And, you know, maybe one day actually affect a change in the society against the people who are cheapening it to where they're not the ones in charge. And that the mutuality and the multiplicity that 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 humanity truly is actually gets to thrive. It's a good metaphor to close on in a time of global warming you can either drown or keep swimming and hopefully again you'll find land it was a pleasure talking to you Dwayne, aka mr fish thank you so much for your time today this was a privilege and very fun bye-bye